the American dream was that you could say what you wanted. You had freedom of expression and lifestyle. If you worked hard and played by the so-called rules, then you prospered and you were secure. Tell that to somebody who's living in Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Baltimore, Washington, Memphis, Minneapolis. If you go into those cities, there's carjackings, there's mass looting, there's theft, there's human excrement on the sidewalk. You fill up your tank in California, it's $5.50 a gallon. You go in to buy something to wire your house, it's $120 for a roll of wire that used to cost $30. So Bidenomics really did a lot because suddenly we went from a 30-year mortgage of 1.9 to 7 plus. And on the basket of essentials for life, food, gas, energy, housing, we're up to about 25% more than when Biden took office. So what he does is he just pathologically lies. He just says, well, inflation's 2% from last month or from me. No, no, it's from when you started. And then he says, well, I bought more jobs. No, you started when there was the COVID lockdown and people had been laid off in the millions and it just was a natural rebound. And you made it worse by engineering the economy when you had, you know, pent up demand and we had the supply chain and you poured money onto that and gave more purchasing power to people who already had it and you ruined the currency. So when you look at energy, check, bad. You look at housing, interest rates, check, bad. You look at inflation, check, bad. You look at crime, check, bad. You look at the border, check, bad. And that causes a general feeling of malaise and depression. The most common thing that I hear if, I, if I'm going somewhere and somebody wants to talk, they say, what happened to the country? What the hell happened to the country? When did Americans say that you could go into an Apple store and just steal and you would be exempt? Or when did, when did Americans say that people could come from the Middle East and disrupt Thanksgiving or tear down flags on Veterans Day or try to disrupt Black Friday shopping or take over bridges or scout out and harass and try to harm Jewish students at our universities? Weren't they guests? Aren't we their host? Is that how they reciprocate our magnanimity? So they, there's a lot of things that bother them. And they look at overseas and they're tired of wars and they don't want optional engagements. So they get depressed and they say to themselves, what did the leftists do with the power we gave them? And they flooded us with immigrants who don't like us. And they allowed crime to escalate to out of control proportions. And they hurt us economically and they humiliated us abroad, whether in Afghanistan or other places, Chinese balloon, China, etc. And they're angry about it. So they're starting to say, these people did this to us and they're shielded from the consequences of their ideology because they're all wealthy. They count on their influence and their money and their networking to shield them from the crime they created from the cost, uh, costly inflation they created, from the housing crisis they created. So people are getting really angry at them and they lash out. And that doesn't help when the academic world and the media world calls them drags and clingers and deplorables and irredeemables, chumps, semi-fascist. When you have Joe Biden saying, "Let's it's Thanksgiving, we're the greatest nation in the world, we've got to unite, man. While he sends out a little manifesto to how to talk to your ultra MAGA people at Thanksgiving, which is just a litany of lies and disparagements. I think the immigration is really starting to alarm people. And for me, it's bewildering because I wrote Mexifornia 22 years ago. But when you allow millions of people to come from one geographical area without diversity, without meritocracy, without skills, and come without English and come illegally, then you have a recipe for disaster and the only way to remedy that if you're still going to do that would be to have a confident host that insists on assimilation and integration but when you have the left the european and american are indeed western left and their whole rationale for this is nobody wants our agenda nobody polls 51 percent for what we're doing on the border or crime or the economy or foreign policy or energy so we need new constituents and when they come in we give them entitlements and we make them swear fealty to the left 
And if you think that's just, oh, he, Victor's a advocate of Tucker Carlson's great replacement. No, it's I'm just quoting what they wrote themselves, the new demographic, the new Democratic majority, demography is destined. These are titles of books by the left in triumphalist fashion. I, I guess what I'm saying is that this new phenomenon that we br we're bringing in millions of people because the left wants a constituency because its message is no longer resonant, it doesn't work. And everybody on the left knows it doesn't work. And we saw what happened at Martha's Vineyard. And then the weird thing is, when people protest on the left, all of a sudden, if you protest, if you're a leftist and you protest and you are kind of a crook, which is okay with the left, look what happens to Eric Adams. All of a sudden, we learned that he's getting illegal campaign donate. They knew that for years from Turkey, but they had no problem with that. But you cross them. Like Elon Musk is another example. You just cross them. They had no problem with Elon Musk. He was their hero because of Tesla. And you cross them one time and they, they're they vindictive people. And so what's weird about all this, just to sum up this, I, I don't want to rant, but what is strange about this is this is different. This is fundamentally, psychologically, socially, economically, culturally different than our past crisis. When you had the Great Depression, when you had the 2008 meltdown, everybody understood there had been a lapse, a breakdown, and it had to be corrected. This time, it's different because this is a self-inflicted suicidal impulse in which when crime goes up, the old remedy of arresting people for crime and greater is not there. And when gas prices go up, that's good, not bad. When we get humiliated abroad, we'll keep getting humiliated abroad. So it's a whole fundamental effort to redefine what the United States is by destroying it. It really is. Filmmaker and independent journalist Ami Horowitz joins us to discuss Thank you for joining me. We see all of these pro-Palestine protests, but I don't see anyone protesting in support of Israel, even though it, it was Hamas that, that instigated all this. Uh, what's going on? Why, why do you think it's only pro-Palestine that we're seeing? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Um, when you saw, you know, 1,500 civilian uh, murdered brutally, the most brutal way possible, most brutal way imaginable, uh, in Israel, you didn't see Jews around the world attacking Muslims, right? Um, when when buses and cafes were blowing up throughout Israel, you didn't see Jews around the world beating people up on the streets. Um, yet you see this time and time again from the Palestinian protesters and their supporters all over the world. And one has to ask why? Why are they so violent all the time? You know, it reminds me, I went to a pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian uh, protest at Columbia University, and I was listening to their chants, and right next to them on the same quad, split in half, were the pro-Israel supporters. And if you just listen to the words being said by the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas supporters, all you heard were words of violence and of genocide, right? That was the language that they used. If you walked over 15 seconds away to the pro-Israel protesters, all you heard were songs about peace about love, about forgiveness. That's the difference between the two sides. And by the way, it's not even just necessarily the pro-Palestinian side. It really is more a factor of the left, right? If you see the, the, the protest from the left, you generally see violence. You went to the BLM protest slash riots uh, across the country, you saw violence. You saw buildings being burned down. It's no wonder the BLM supporters and the Palestinians are supporters of one another. Violence is a hallmark of the left. Not to say the right doesn't engage in it ever, of course they do, but it's more the exception that proves the rule. So I think that's a reflection of that larger trend. Well, with the Israel versus Palestine situation, I'm seeing even people on the right be upset about the situation over there. And, you know, the fact, if, if it's true that Israel has already killed more than 20,000 people, that's a lot of violence and um, good reason to protest or no? What do you think? 
Look, you can always, we live in a free country, you're always allowed to protest, of course, peacefully. Um, but the 20,000 number without context doesn't mean a whole lot, right? It's, it's not about, when it comes to um, uh, what is the right way to handle a war and to prosecute a war, a raw number like 20,000 doesn't mean much. First of all, the 20,000 number that we get from Hamas, right? That's not a number that we actually, uh, that, it's an, that may or may not be an accurate count. But let's assume for a moment that it is an accurate count, that 20,000 people were killed. That's not 20,000 civilians. Israel has said they've killed between seven to 10,000 Hamas members. So, and this is pretty much in line with uh, conflicts in Gaza, where Israel has killed for every Hamas terrorist, uh, there have been uh, two to three civilian casualties. Now, that may sound like a lot without context, but that's actually a historically good is a wrong word to use. But a historical a, a number that shows how actually how ethical the IDF is when engaging in war, particularly when it's fighting a war in the most densely populated place on earth, where Hamas is specifically trying to use human shields. And for context, uh, one would argue that NATO certainly prosecutes war um, as ethically as, as possible. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, NATO would kill for every militant, would kill between three and five civilians. So the numbers are actually better when it comes to its ability to protect civilians on, on the Israeli side than NATO. Again, even though uh, it's a much more difficult place to prosecute a war because of how dense it is and because Hamas is specifically trying to gin up civilian numbers because that helps them in the propaganda war. So look, obviously every innocent death is a tragedy. There's no question about that. But ultimately, you have to put numbers like that in context. It's a war. In war, civilians are killed. It's horrific. It's horrible. But at the end of the day, this is a war that Israel didn't start. This is a war the Palestinians in Gaza started with Israel. And this is the consequence, the deadly consequence of those actions. Well, there definitely does seem to be more anti-Semitism since that war broke out. And you recently visited San Francisco State University to conduct a test on how easy it is to convince people to donate to supporting killing Jews in this anti-Semitic uh, culture that we seem to be seeing before our eyes growing. So you have this video clip from from PragerU, watch. Arms and weapons to fight back against the Jews, operations against the Jews, but around the world, in, in France, in Germany, here, in Britain, wherever they are, but here in Europe, we want to raise arms so we can strike them all over the world. We have to hit these people hard. Yeah. And we want to fund operations against soft targets, uh, schools, hospitals, Jewish cafes, hospitals, Jewish schools, Jewish buses, synagogues, that kind of thing. Targets that can make them really feel it, attack, blow things up, blow shit up. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. You know, yeah. we have to strike back. Yeah, we can't no, I definitely agree. All we have are rockets and suicide bombers and that kind of thing. How much money would you be able to do? It's tax deductible. A couple bucks. Like five. Five bucks are great. Ten. Ten? Yeah, like five to ten. Yeah. Like fifteen dollars right now. Like fifteen, twenty dollars probably. That'd be great. Cool twenty. Big bucks. Piece yeah, of love. Yes. Twenty-eight out of thirty-five people that I engaged in conversation with expressed support for what I was doing. Okay, so I just want to get your reaction to what you discovered on campus there. What did you think? I mean, it, it breaks my heart. Every, you know, people always, people ask me oftentimes, what's my reaction when I shoot videos like that? This one's not just specifically, but all, all, all videos that I do that are similar in vain. And they ask me, do you get mad? Are you upset? And the answer, of course, but more than that, I'm profoundly saddened uh, by what we see. Um, look, it, it is, it's it's hard to describe in words um, the hatred that the hard left. And, this, and again, I'm not saying this is the center left. This is the hard left, right? I specifically chose uh, SFSU, San Francisco State University, because it's one of the most progressive schools in the country. I chose them as my subject because I know that at the end of the day, when you're preaching to people, um, and this is what professors, the garbage that the professors are teaching at many of our universities, thus what you saw with the university presidents and Congress, when you are preaching to your students that Jews uh, um, are, are the most successful subgroup in the world and therefore they can only have been successful by taking from others, right? And again, substitute Jews for the West, substitute Jews for America or for people who are successful, and you'll get the same kind of hatred, the same kind of vitriol. Um, 
Yeah, if you're taught that day in and day out that the, they're successful because they took from other people, well, there's no limiting principle then. Then, of course, you would say, well, this is why um, this is going on in, in the Palestinian territories. These are terrible, evil people. And therefore, what do you do with terrible, evil people? Well, killing them wouldn't be wrong. Uh, that's why this experiment uh, succeeded or failed, I guess, depending on your perspective, where I was able to ask students to give me money to kill Jews, and they did so lustfully. It's a, it's a horrific thing to watch. Oh my gosh, that's that's wild. Are you Jewish, Shami? I am. I am. I was gonna say you you see you you look Jewish, and the kids on campus didn't think something was up with those questions about killing Jews. You know, it's, it. it's it's funny you asked that. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, one time I was undercover. And I was going to interview Islamic Jihad in Jenin, in the refugee camps of Jenin, which is a pretty hairy place. And as we're driving up, uh, we started getting some very hard looks from some very bad-looking people. And my, um, my, my local producer was like, look, I think we need to turn around. I think you know, the jig is up. I said, don't worry. My mother says that when I, when I grow a little bit of a scruff, I look Palestinian. And his answer was, in, uh, in Los Angeles, you look Palestinian. In Jenin, you look like Israeli special forces. <laughs> Wow. Okay, so uh, real quick, one last question for you. Rapper Kanye West was one of the biggest voices in pop culture that turned anti-Semitic, and he just put out a statement on his Instagram written in Hebrew apologizing to the Jews. Kanye said, quote, I sincerely apologize to the Jewish community for any unintended outbursts caused by my words or actions. It was not my intention to offend or demean, and I deeply regret any pain I may have caused, if that's an accurate translation from the Hebrew. Now, do you think that Kanye has helped contribute to the rise in anti-Semitism, and will this apology help anything? He absolutely uh, uh, has helped cause in the rise of anti-Semitism, and um, he didn't intend to, to harm and to hurt? Well, you've got to be kidding me. Did you hear, hear the words that he used? He absolutely intended to cause harm. That's exactly what he did. He didn't make a, a one flippant comment that he, that he made a mistake on. I, I could forgive for that. Look, I could forgive anything. I can including forgive Kanye West over a period of time if he does try to make amends. But to say that he didn't intend to hurt is, is ridiculous on its face. He made comment after comment, doubled down, tripled down on the horrific, uh, words that he used against the Jewish community. So no, it, 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 it doesn't hold water for me. I, I don't forgive him for what he said. Not to say I couldn't over time, um, but certainly a, a comment like that just makes it worse because it's ridiculous it's on his face. Wow, good point. Well, thank you so much for your insight. Great talking to you, Ami Horowitz. Thank you. Democrats want you to be sick, unhappy, and mentally ill. Mr. Reagan. Leftists want you to be sick. They want you to be unhappy. And they even want you to be mentally ill. And here's the thing. Sick people, unhappy people, and mentally ill people, they all tend to vote Democrat. But let's start with the most outlandish part of this. Democrats want you to be mentally ill. Have a look at this. Leftists are massively more likely to be diagnosed with mental illness. And so this begs the question, which came first, the leftism or the mental illness? And I know what you're gonna say, it's the same thing, Chris, it's the same thing. And yeah, okay, agreed. But leftism as yet has not been defined by science as a mental illness, absurd as that might seem. But so, okay, so which is it? Well, I suspect that the mental illness comes first. I think mentally ill people are just drawn to the Democrat party. This is because the Democrat Party is all about taking care of you. The state will take care of you. The state will, will coddle you and it will protect you. Republicans, we're all about independence, responsibility, and self-reliance. Democrats are mom. Republicans are dad. And when you are a total wreck, strung out, hungover, wallowing in the depths of depression, confused, lonely, sad, tired, you don't want dad telling you to get up. Stand up straight, brush yourself off, go get a job. No, you want mom to tuck you into bed and bring you a bowl of chicken soup. The less able someone is to care for themselves, the more paranoid they are, the less control they feel they have over their own lives, the less healthy they are and the poorer they are, the more likely they are to want the government 
to take care of them. And it's the Democrats who are always telling everyone, it's okay if you're struggling, mommy, big government will take care of you. And it's the Republican who says, be healthy, be successful, become independent. You don't need government. And so the more Americans there are who are confident and awesome, the more likely it is that our elected officials will be Republican. But the more Americans there are who are suffering from mental instability, the more likely it is that our elected officials will be Democrat. And so it's actually rational, though insanely sinister, for Democrats to take on a political strategy to make women unhappy. So are they actually doing this? I don't know, but I think they might be. So... Have Democrat politicians, radical left activists, and leftists in the media taken on a political strategy of making women mentally ill? Well, maybe. It is sometimes in the best interest of certain organizations that people are miserable. It has been observed by many that the pharmaceutical companies have perverse incentives. It's more profitable to create treatments for lifelong illnesses than it is to create cures. You can only sell a patient a cure once, but you can sell a patient a treatment for decades. And in the case of the Democrat Party, as I've explained, this is also true. Americans suffering from mental illness are just more likely to vote Democrat. So Democrats will naturally want more mental illness. And unfortunately, there are people in this world so evil that they will see this as an opportunity, an opportunity to capitalize on the suffering of Americans, and they will create even more suffering. It's like the Democrats always say, never let a crisis go to waste. Never waste a good crisis. And here's the really weird thing. In the past few years, mental illness has become trendy. There is an alarming new trend of teens turning to social media to diagnose themselves. One Valley therapist says he's seen a sharp increase of kids believing they had everything from OCD to ADHD, even depression and Tourette's. And as Team 12's Michael Doudna shows us, the teens don't have those disorders at all. On TikTok, the hashtag mental health has been searched more than 67 billion times. If you've got ADHD, autism, or you have ADHD, let's talk about awareness. This time has been super difficult for all of us. The search became a serious problem for Samantha Fridley. Originally, it was more mental health advocacy. It turned into diagnosis. As a high schooler who was already seeing a therapist for anxiety and depression, Fridley watched countless videos of influencers sharing thoughts on mental health conditions. Soon, she started to believe she was bipolar, had borderline personality disorder, and ADHD. According to one analysis of popular TikTok videos about ADHD, 52% were deemed misleading. And you were self-diagnosing. Mm-hmm. Were you diagnosed with any of these? Never. I had a friend who posted this one flowchart of how an ADHD person sort of thinks. Juliana Dodds has been on a voyage of self-discovery for years. And it was like, that's me. Maybe I have ADHD. Juliana is one of millions who engage with ADHD and neurodiversity content online. A massive influx of people who think they have ADHD. So I'm Annie Crow, and I am an autistic ADHDer, late diagnosed. They're calling it a horoscope effect, where I'm predicting it's going to happen, so therefore it happens. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. For example, the hashtag Tourette's on TikTok has 5.3 billion views. And while parts of the hashtag do raise awareness and reduce stigma... Kids who believe they have a condition can develop very real symptoms. Kids are suggestible to the point where they can pick up facial tics because they've watched enough videos about it. So at the end of the day, how do you treat something that is self-created? That's the thing, and it's so tricky because they have all the symptoms of the issue. They don't actually have that issue, though. So kids are now calling themselves neurodivergent. I'm divergent. And kids today actually want to be neurodivergent because it has become something that makes them feel special. They think that if they're neurodivergent, it means that their brains just work a little different than everybody else. And maybe, just just maybe, they work a little bit better than everybody else. And that is a very seductive idea. It makes them feel special. And I think this stems from a trend in the 90s and, you know, in the early 2000s to destigmatize mental illness. Parents, teachers, doctors, and folks in the media, 
They weren't just saying, it's okay to suffer from mental illness. You don't have to be ashamed of that. No, they were actually telling kids, suffering from mental illness might actually make you better than other people. It might mean you're special. Neurodiversity exists, just like diversity exists in ethnicity, gender, and sexual orientation. Advocating for the acceptance of the autism spectrum is reflecting natural variations in the human brain rather than a disease that needs to be cured. This movement has grown within the autism community as well as to other neurodivergent folks. Hi, I have ADHD. <laughs> the Harvard Business Review released a study that found that people on the spectrum are 20% more productive than their neurotypical peers if they're given the right environment and right opportunities. Neurodivergent folks have a very rich inner life. We often feel things very deeply. Our emotions and our thought processes matter to us, and we consider them thoroughly. Like I said before, we notice subtleties a lot better than neurotypical people most of the time. Welcome to the neurodivergent community. And we used to say this is a joke. He's special. But at some point, it stopped being a euphemism, and it started being believed literally. But not just that. There is now so many kids who claim to be neurodivergent that it's become a subculture. Now, subcultures develop when there are a lot of people who don't feel like they fit into the mainstream. It's something that people join in order to get a sense of belonging. I feel really like I am understood, like somebody else gets it, like somebody else has been able to put it to words, this feeling. But this subculture... This subculture is particularly pernicious because I suspect that by tricking these kids into convincing themselves that they're crazy, I think some of them actually become crazy. And we all know that TikTok, a Chinese company, has been proven to be harmful for children. And yet, the politicians in D.C. have done nothing about this. It's almost as if these politicians are benefited by reducing these children's quality of life. It's almost as if they're in the business of human suffering. And here's another example. Being gay or trans is closely associated with depression, mental illness, and unhappiness. LGBT people still suffer with high levels of depression, anxiety, addictions, and suicide. I know because I'm one of them. And the left for years have tried to normalize aberrant sexual behavior. And they never acknowledge that this can make people truly miserable, that this can drive people to develop mental illnesses. They always claim that the reason gay men or transgender women have these unusually high rates of mental illness is because of the stigmatization that they experience from an intolerant society. And yet, society has been celebrating LGBTQ crap for decades. So that is clearly not true. And so why? I mean, if you really care about gay men, why not recognize that homosexuality may sometimes cause mental illness? Well, because I don't think they do care about these gay men. I think they want these men to be miserable. I think that they want these men to suffer from mental illness. I don't want to get into a debate about the value of antidepressants, but I've heard some things. And I've also heard that they are becoming wildly overprescribed in America. The number of prescriptions for antidepressants has gone up eight times over the past three decades to about 1.7 billion daily doses a year. The main kind of antidepressant are the SSRIs. The thing is, they do, the, the way they work kind of is they sort of, they sort of make the pain go away, but they also make the happiness go away. And so you can end up feeling a bit like, a bit sort of dead inside. No one actually knows what goes on in the brain during depression and how antidepressants influence the psyche. The 2022 study concludes that drugs only show significantly stronger effects than a placebo in just 15% of patients. This is the kind of thing that you think politicians wanting to improve the quality of life of ordinary Americans that they'd want to tackle, but nope. And consider the fentanyl epidemic. Drug addictions can destroy many people's lives. This is about as common as common knowledge gets. And so naturally, to control what comes across our border, that border needs to be closed. But what did Democrats do as soon as they got into power? The border essentially evaporated. No more border. Bring in whatever illegal drugs you want into America. One very well-established path toward happiness, contentment, and improved quality of life is the acceptance and active practice of Christianity. And yet Democrats have essentially declared war on Christianity. If you're a Christian, you're likely to vote Republican. And what is Christianity all about? Christianity is all about 
love. Love your brother. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. It's all about love and forgiveness and peace and joy. So naturally, Democrats are all against that. (laughs) If you want a society to be utterly miserable, a great way to accomplish that goal would be to draw that society away from Christianity. And leftists have developed an entirely new culture in America, grievance culture. Americans are encouraged to examine their lives, consider what's wrong with it, and then to blame someone else. In particular, that blame tends to be leveled at straight white men. Are you a woman and you're unhappy? It's because of straight white men. Are you black and unhappy? Well, it's because of straight white men. Are you gay and unhappy? Well, that is because of straight white men. And this grievance culture, I think, it makes some people desperately miserable. I think in some extreme cases, grievance culture alone has probably ruined some people's lives. And you know what also makes people happy? Good health. Healthy people are naturally happier people. If you take care of your physical health, it has huge benefits. You see, our mood, our happiness, and our feelings of mental health are almost entirely controlled by our brain chemistry, this complex cocktail of hormones in our head. Exercise can immediately and acutely make us feel happier. Find something you enjoy and do more of it. People that enjoy exercising keep doing it. And those that keep doing it not only reap all of the short-term benefits I mentioned earlier, they tend to be the ones that achieve the greatest long-term improvements in health and their physiques. Now, I happen to believe that it's much easier to be healthy if you are already happy. And being in a good, healthy, romantic relationship also makes you happy. And then the big surprising finding is relationships not just keeping us happier, but keeping us healthier and helping us live longer. Being married, in particular, has a large impact on how long people live. There's one study, uh, I think it's pretty well respected, that, that suggests that married men live 12 years longer on average than unmarried men, and married women live seven years longer on average than unmarried women. But being fit and attractive makes it easier to land a high quality romantic partner. So it's like a love, health, and happiness circle. But I think all these things feed into each other. And so it's more like a Jenga tower, each piece relying on the others to stay up. But when you pull one of those Jenga pieces out, the whole thing can fall apart. And so of course, leftists will tell you that obesity is healthy. You be fat and fit. One doctor says yes in a controversial new book called The Obesity Paradox, when thinner means sicker and heavier means healthier. But the body positivity movement preaches that fat is now fabulous. This has come to head recently with lots of uh, lots of media attention ever since Cosmopolitan put out their magazine uh, with on the cover an obese woman doing yoga with the title, This is Healthy. I don't like that that Cosmopolitan article said this is healthy. That is not a true statement, and that is going to mislead a lot of people into a false sense of confidence. I have no desire in me to change my body in any way. Mm-hmm. I like when my bucket's a little bigger. Not, I agree with you on that not, one. Not at all. See, this is where we're gonna no. get, because I will yeah. tell you, not every big person wants to be small. Do I feel like there are people in the body positive community that say, well, I'm just happy being fat, and I'm just gonna lay down and just do that? Yeah, absolutely. So intentional weight loss. So you purposely saying, I want to lose 20 pounds is fat phobic. What if we told you this woman might be more fit than some of those size twos? I want to talk about this big myth, this big myth about fat and health, which is that fat is unhealthy and weight loss is healthy. Once you say this is healthy, now you've crossed over to the line of science and we have studies we can fall back on to answer that question. And that's going to be more strongly correlated with risk of dying and risk of comorbid conditions, um, especially cardiovascular disease, diabetes, other metabolic conditions. And what has been the goal of Democrats since at least the Clinton administration? Nationalized healthcare, socialized medicine. And one way to get there is to reduce the health of the population so significantly that the cost of private healthcare simply becomes overwhelming. And it doesn't have to be that way for all Americans, just enough so that there's a groundwell of support for nationalizing the healthcare system. Are you too sick and poor to take care of yourself? Worry not, the government will take care of you. I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. At this point, 
poor, gullible Democrat voters, they hardly stand a chance. The left has truly brainwashed them. Democrat voters are totally convinced that anthropogenic climate change will destroy the planet. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. Climate hysteria actually drives people toward mental illness in a variety of ways. Some people become obsessed. In Vail, Colorado, the nation's busiest ski resort was hit today by a fire. Arson is suspected. You may have heard of the Earth Liberation Front. The Attorney General himself says it's a domestic terrorist organization. The FBI says it is one of the most dangerous groups in the country. In 2001, I was involved uh, with the Earth Liberation Front. And I was involved in two separate arsons in one year. Sometimes when you see things you love being destroyed, you just want to destroy those things. And none of this is an accident. Climate hysteria is intentional. Driving people to mental illness over concerns about climate change is a feature, not a bug. I mean, look, Democrats know that their ideas are breaking people. Earlier this year, in April, 25-year-old Connor Sturgeon walked into the bank where he worked in Louisville, Kentucky, and he shot 12 of his fellow employees, killing five. Sturgeon had scribbled out a 13-page manifesto, and this guy was very clearly brainwashed by the left. He wanted to target, quote, upper-class white people, and he wanted his attack to spur on gun control legislation. In March of this year, 28-year-old Audrey Elizabeth Hale walked into Covenant Private Christian School in Nashville, Tennessee, and she murdered six people, including three nine-year-old children. Allie Scraggs, William Kinney, and Evelyn Dykehouse, all just nine years old. This was the most shocking and horrific act of domestic terrorism this country had seen in many years. Hale also left a manifesto, and hers read like a radical left critical theory seminar. She, of course, referenced white privilege, and she identifies herself as a male, calling herself Aiden. And look, I don't think it's that easy to brainwash a person, especially to brainwash them to such an extent that they are willing to commit acts of terrorism. Because you know what? The truth is often very simple and very obvious. And yet they reject the truth. And they passionately adopt nonsense about climate change and gun control and transgenderism and systemic racism and white privilege. This brainwashing works because it's being repeated every day, all day by politicians, the news media, Hollywood, in public schools and universities, and from a million other sources. This manipulation is very strong. Consider this. In order to believe Democrat lies, most people have to do more than just passively listen to Democrats. They have to actively ignore their own life experience. And they have to reject the truths that are readily apparent. Uh, there's a great example of this. I have a buddy who grew up in the same place that I did. Years later, we met up, and he was, you know, a leftist. He believed in systemic racism. He believed that white people all over the country were racists. And I said to him, you grew up in the same place I did. I never met a racist. My whole life growing up, I never met anyone who was racist against black people. Did you? And he thought about it for a second. And he goes, no, actually, no, I never did. And I said, so how is it possible that there's all these white racists all over the country that CNN talks about? It doesn't exist. It's not real. And he, but he didn't care. He just said, well, they're, maybe they're not the kind of people I would meet. Or maybe they don't live here, but they maybe live in other parts of the country. And I'm like, no, they don't. They don't live anywhere. They're invented by CNN. People have to ignore their own life experience to believe Democrat lies. Self-deception, delusion, this is a kind of mental illness. And this is at the core of Democrat political strategy. Democrats rely on people to lie to themselves. Democrats are like the devil. They prey on human weakness. And so the more weak Americans that exist, the more Democrat voters they can create. Democrats want welfare check recipients. They want people who are too sick to function. They want despondent people. They want the mentally ill. They want as many people as possible to rely on the federal government. And so if you're happy and you're healthy and you're fit and you're successful, well, they aim to change that. The Democrat Party says, don't work. Be lazy. Be poor. Rely on welfare. Be fat, be sick, rely on medications from the pharmaceutical companies. Allow your physical health, your financial health, and your mental health to deteriorate. It's fine. The government will take care of you. Leftists in general, and feminists in particular, have told women for years that they should all have abortions whenever they want. 
Okay, so now this woman kills her own baby. And so now they have to vote Democrat forever because voting Republican would be an acknowledgement that what they did was wrong. If they vote Democrat, it's just a cluster of cells. But if they vote Republican, they killed their baby. Feminists have told women that there is no consequence to abortion, but we know that this can destroy a woman's mental health. When I first walked out of the abortion clinic, I had such an empty feeling. I don't know if I've ever felt that empty in my life. Some women go into meltdown immediately after an abortion procedure, and others can keep things buttoned down for a long time, and I was one of those. But there was a deadness and a flatness and a grayness to my life that I just could no longer deny. An abortion choice, this kind of grief, is particularly difficult because we've brought it on ourselves. And it is our own child that is lost at our own hand. It is a profoundly disturbing topic, and so women are not talking. But these so-called feminists, they clearly do not care about the mental health of women because they encourage them to kill their own babies. Feminism is not about empowering women. It's about controlling women. Having a family, making a beautiful home, preparing delicious meals for the family, these are things that have made women happy for thousands of years. Feminists came along and they said, you know what, those things, they don't make you happy. They make you miserable. If you want to be happy, you do what we tell you to do. Feminism has nothing to do with improving the lives of women. Feminism is about total control and manipulation. And feminism has completely deteriorated the mental health of women across America. Men's mental health is connected to what we choose to do. Women's mental health is connected to what they're convinced to do. So women have to be much more careful about who they let influence them. Parents need to teach their daughters how to ignore and reject bad influences. All right, so now we got this nation full of young people who are mostly borderline mentally ill. And then we lock them down with something like COVID and they hit a tipping point. Suddenly, they are reliant on antidepressants and they're voting Democrat for the rest of their lives. To fix this, we need to simply teach the fundamentals. Spiritual health, be a good Christian. Mental health, maintain good relationships with your family and your friends. Physical health, good diet and exercise. Financial health, work hard and with integrity. And find a purpose in life. At the end of the day, I truly believe that there's one thing that above all else can improve mental health, and that is confidence. And in order to be confident, you just need two things. You need to recognize your value in society, and you need to recognize your own shortcomings. That's it. But you do need both. If you are too arrogant and you think that you're the best at everything, well, you're delusional. Deep down, you know you're lying to yourself. This is not true confidence. This is self-delusion, and you are psychologically sick. And if you focus exclusively on your shortcomings, well, I think the problems with that are obvious. But, uh, you know, some people, you know, they, they're actually not that impressive. In fact, this is probably true of most young people. And so for these young people, there is a third factor, a third ingredient to developing a healthy confidence, and that is excellence. Be excellent. That is, improve yourself. Become outstanding in some way. Strive to be the best at whatever it is that you're the most naturally inclined towards. Our culture has shifted toward this insane idea that everybody is special and that you don't need to be good at anything. You don't need to be impressive. You don't need to achieve anything. You don't need to excel. You don't even need to produce any effort in your life. You're magic just the way you are. We used to call the entitled young people who uh, bought into this crap snowflakes. And this was a totally appropriate label. But you know what? This attitude, this idea still saturates our culture. Improving yourself, becoming impressive, this is a great way to improve your confidence. And it, it seems obvious, but I think it's sometimes overlooked these days. And finding a purpose in this life, this will almost certainly build that confidence along with striving for excellence. So simple, but I think great advice to ameliorate the mental illness crisis in America today. Find your purpose and strive for excellence. 
Let's make America excellent again. All right, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Do you think Democrats are intentionally making people sick, unhappy, and mentally ill? Or do you think I'm way off here? Thanks for staying till the end with me, guys. Remember to buy all my overpriced crap at Teespring and throw some money my way via a super thanks or, you know, here on YouTube or through Patreon. Let's keep this channel alive so we can keep trying to save the world. Until next time, remember, it's not that liberal friends are ignorant. It's just they know so much that is not so. Good night. The destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. There's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. When Barack Obama came into power, he did something I don't think anybody recognizes, but it was the most deleterious thing in my life that any president's done. He took the binary of the unique African-American experience, which was no like no other minority. And that binary had been something that binary since the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement had been something the United States was working and succeeding in. And he said that It's not just black versus white, it's everybody who is non-white. They're part of a collective. And all of a sudden I I noticed that people who were rich farm owners with 10,000 acres from the Punjab, or a third generation Japanese optometrist, or a upper middle class professor from Brazil was telling me that he was diverse. And all of a sudden they were part of this group and we were all going to find some type of edge. So we had, what, Elizabeth Warren saying she was Native American. We had Rachel Dozel saying she was black. And it became kind of a parlor game among friends of mine. They said, you know, your children have Oklahoma blood in them. Maybe they're Cherokee. Once you take a DNA and they can get a little edge. Everybody was trying to find some edge. And it shows you how racist we become because as you know, In the old South, everybody was doing the opposite. Everybody was scared stiff that somewhere in their past they had black blood and they had 116th was the rule, one drop. If you could trace a African-American, then you were considered African-American. Now we've gone back to the Confederate idea and just flipped it, but it's still racist. So we are, we're tribal people now. And that's, there's no society, whether it's the Balkans or Rwanda, we we know where that goes. We know what, what we have a destiny with because everybody to survive will start being tribal. I live in a community that's 85% Latino. I don't know very many white people anymore. They mostly moved away. But at Walmart, for some strange reason, before eight o'clock in the morning, it's all white, the vestigial population. And for the first time in my life, I walk in and here's what happens. People don't know me. Hi, how are you? Hey, good to see you. And what they're doing is they're identifying with a shared whiteness because they feel the whole society is becoming tribal and they're going to adopt by tribe. And I'll say to some, I don't know who you are. (laughs) Why would I feel closer to that person because he happens to be white than a Mexican American person who's conservative and shares my own view? But if that's where we're headed and when history teaches us, once we go tribal, it's like going nuclear. Once one nation goes nuclear, when one people goes tribal, everybody's gonna go tribal for defense. It happens like that. The work of a multi-racial unified culture takes centuries. The work of a multicultural divisive culture can happen in two or three years. Read Thucydides if you don't believe me. When you read a historian like Thucydides, they always start with the idea that a pre-civilization, pre-modern society has no meritocracy. You hire your first cousin or your general appearance is essential, not incidental to who you are. And the tribe then is the enemy of progress, it's the enemy of meritocracy. I've been, I think to every country in the Middle East except Iran, when I talk to people, journalists there, they always say something. It's it's a constant refrain. The reason that things don't work here is because we hire our first cousin. And we don't hire the most capable person because we judge people by their blood ties or their superficial appearance. We had been fighting with a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in the South. We're now in 50 years since the Civil Rights Movement and Affirmative Action, and we were starting to realize Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of the content of our character 
rather than, than this color of our skin. And we've gone back 50 years with this woke movement. This woke movement was not started grassroots. This is a top-down phenomenon. This is Oprah Winfrey from her $90 million statement Montecito complaining about ill treatment to Meghan Markle in her $15 million uh, mansion. This is Barack and Michelle Obama worth $100 million coming out and then pontificating on the unfairness as they go back to their 38-acre, $14 million Martha Vineyard estate. I could go on, but you get the picture. The BLM founder, Phyllis Queller, she's on house number four in Topaga Canyon. Professor Kendi, if you want to hear him, it's $20,000, $333 a minute for his advice about how you must be racist to stop racism and you must discriminate to stop discrimination. These are not revolutionaries out on the barricade. This is an elite-driven uh, drive for the spoils of America, camouflaged as if America is culpable. When I heard General Milley and the Chief of Naval Operations and the Defense Secretary say that they were rooting out white privilege, white supremacy, and white whiteness, I did think, what's going on in Afghanistan? Why we were losing Afghanistan while Joe Biden was telling us everything was okay in Afghanistan, they have 300,000 men, they have airport, why he was calling the Afghan president and stealthy saying, even if you're losing it, please lie, what was our military doing? They were cannibalizing their own ranks. And when General Austin said, we want every aspect of our military to reflect proportionality. Okay, white males, to take one example, do you really want to go down that tribal road where every single person is, is going to have a job based on their racial component? Because that's a trajectory to nihilism. And it's not, even, it's not even represented. We don't do that. We did that in the NBA when we were racist. And we had a, the NBA was not as exciting. Now we're going 76% African-American. I think that's great. It's based on merit. But it violates the very canons of the left that says you cannot do that. So when I heard, Mr. When I heard Austin and Mealy say that, I said, okay. White males make up 33% of the population. They've died in, in Iraq at 75%, and they've died in Afghanistan at 74 Are you going to call up the Afghan airport and say, hey, anybody who's a white male, pull back. You have, you've died and overrepresented. So it's somebody else's turn to go get killed. So you can see where we're going. The ultimate manifestation is a DNA badge. So we all try to adjudicate whether we're going to go back to the south 116th drop Unless you think I'm kidding, <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren tried that, didn't she? And she found out she didn't even have one 16th drop, but she relied on high cheekbone. She didn't have the creativity and the imagination of Ward Churchill, who at least took the trouble to dress up as a Native American, even though he wasn't. And so that's what we're doing now. Under the racism that was in the United States, especially in the South, but it was there, people then said, I'm going to pass for white. It was a tragic experience because they thought they would get superior and discriminatory treatment. Now it's, I'm going to pass for non-white. So we come full circle, but we're no morally better than where we were. And this is tragic because we, we were on the pathway to an assimilated, intermarried, and integrated society.